Friends and students, which category you like. Uh, we have the last session with Peter now. Um, I hope the first one was enlightening. You see the importance of logic and using logic properly. And we need to train ourselves to do that. And we need to train ourselves both in our Christian communication to make our communication consistent and, and, and logical, meaningful, uh, and true, of course. And then we need to use the logical apparatus to understand and challenge also the other perspectives and um, objections to Christianity, for example. Uh, now, Pete has written a lot of interesting stuff. He has written this book. Did he mention it from the start? A Skeptic's Guide to Atheism. The title is very subversive. A Skeptic's Guide... Well, you think the skeptic must be an atheist. You think it's an atheist's guide to atheism. A very intelligent atheist. But this is a Christian author's guide to atheism. He's skeptical about atheism, intellectually. Um, and he's using the kind of... Uh, I'm not sure, irony or subversive communication, like C.S. Lewis as well. Uh, he has written a book that should, we should have been available right now for you, about Jesus. And that's what he's going to present now, the, the content of the very, very fresh book. And I challenge you, or encourage you, to go to Amazon after this week and buy the book. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's one of the, well, one of not very many books that you can buy, read, and share with non-Christian friends. It's intended, it's written for people who are not inside the Christian fold. Um, so it's a communication across worldviews. And that's what we're going to listen to now as well, with lots of apologetic content. He has also, he's also writing another book. He's written five or six books already. So he's keeping busy. <laughs> the book he's finishing is very relevant for tomorrow because it's about C.S. Lewis and the new atheists. The new atheists, like Richard Dawkins and so on, are very aggressive and they use arguments. And then he compares the new atheists with how C.S. Lewis was before faith. So C.S. Lewis was an atheist. He lost his atheism by his intellectual reflection, he's comparing how they, how the old atheists, like C.S. Lewis, was thinking, and the new atheists. And I guess he finds the old atheists a lot more um, solid intellectually. Uh, so that, we're looking forward to that book, and it's really very important for tomorrow, uh, because C.S. Lewis had this um, pilgrimage from Christian faith, it was childhood, to atheism and losing his atheism, coming to Christian faith in the end. Learn learning about atheism through him is quite helpful. So bring that, have that in mind um, uh, when um, thinking about the course and Peter. Now Peter, you've been you've been um, teaching and communicating a lot to students and non-Christians. Uh, and I guess this is also aimed for a non-Christian audience. 
although our students are yeah. Christians. Yeah. So maybe you could start by just some comments mm. on, on what you do mm. to make mm. this book uh, readable and understandable to non-Christians. Sure. Thank you very much, Ron. Um, again, I think titles are, are very uh, important. Covers are very important for books. Uh, you might have heard that old saying, don't judge a book by its cover. But of course, everybody judges books by their cover. Um, <laughs> that's why you think, oh, that looks interesting. Pick it up, start reading the blurb and so on. Um, so I've called this book uh, Understanding Jesus. And there's a subtitle, uh, which you can't quite make out here, perhaps. But the subtitle is Five Ways to Spiritual Enlightenment. Um, it's partly a pun on uh, Thomas Aquinas, the famous medi med medieval theologian philosopher who had in his Summa Theologica five ways, he called them five arguments for belief in God. And this book is putting five arguments for the Christian understanding of Jesus. Indeed, I, I believe that it is the five arguments that Jesus and his immediate disciples gave for the Christian understanding of Jesus, for Jesus' own self-understanding being true. Um, and I'm going to give you the kind of core, an overview of the core argument, the five. We may not have time to get through all five. I'd rather look at the arguments at our own pace than, than get through them all. But I'm going to try and give you an overview of these five ways that form a cumulative case for the Christian understanding of Jesus. But the book does a lot of framing of that discussion that's at the heart of it in terms of thinking about what is the nature of spirituality? What is a spirituality? What, uh, what did Jesus think a true spirituality is? Is there an automatic um, tension between uh, intellectual thought and spiritual things? Or are they compatible? The way in which... Lots of atheist writers will look to the Enlightenment era uh, as if it's sort of automatically uh, atheistical and sceptical in the atheist kind of sense. So I draw on writers like Immanuel Kant, who were Christian Enlightenment philosophers, uh, to do a little bit of a sort of um, undermining of this notion that the, the Enlightenment and being rational and so on automatically means turning your back on religious or spiritual uh, ideas. And of course, this image of enlightenment is linked very much, uh, particularly perhaps with Eastern religions, the, the sort of Buddhist reaching of enlightenment and so on, or having a religious experience that, that enlightens us, reveals something of reality to us. So I'm, I'm, I'm drawing on lots of sort of words and images that people who are not necessarily interested in Christianity might well be interested in the concept of spirituality or enlightenment and how do these things fit together. And I do that through looking at what is the nature of spirituality, what was Jesus's own spirituality that we can work out from the, the historical evidence, what role did Jesus see himself playing in people's spirituality and are there reasons to think that he was right about his conception of what true spirituality was. And I end the book looking at, okay, if you um, understood Jesus in the way Jesus did, what spirituality would you adopt? What would that mean for your sort of whole life? Not just your intellectual beliefs, 
but your whole way of life, uh, your whole mind and heart and strength, as Jesus talks about uh, those different elements of the whole person being engaged in spirituality. Um, Also, understanding Jesus, um, famous uh, philosopher in America called Peter Kreef, who's a Catholic philosopher, uh, very good writer, a big fan of C.S. Lewis, as well as Thomas Aquinas, uh, and he has a, it's again a bit of a pun in the English, but he unpacks uh, what it is to understand something. And he says to understand something, to understand reality, is to stand under the authority of what's true, what's real, to determine how you think about reality. So it's allowing reality and the truth to call the shots and determine what you're going to think about life rather than saying, I'm at the centre of everything and everything must conform to what I want. So understanding, I'm basically saying, if you come to understand Jesus and think that that his self-understanding was true then you have to understand, to stand under his authority in a whole life sense as well that follows on from this intellectual discussion. So the book moves from uh, an intellectual discussion through to a spiritual challenge, really, to the whole person um, at the end. And giving a cumulative case, that means the kind of case that you might get in a court of law where you have various bits of evidence that all point towards the same conclusion. And the overall strength of that case is stronger than any individual piece of evidence and is actually stronger than simply adding together the individual strength of each of those bits of evidence. It's not simply a case of one piece of evidence plus one piece of evidence plus one plus one plus one equals five strength of evidence, as it were, if you could have some sort of unit of evidence strength. It's much more a case of one plus one plus one plus one plus one equals six or seven or eight. Because in a cumulative case, you have different pieces of evidence that all point in the same direction. So say you're in a court of law, you have some evidence from some uh, witnesses to the crime. Now, however many witnesses you have, I suppose you could say maybe someone's bribed them all. Maybe someone's intimidated the witnesses so that this kind of evidence is not reliable. But you've also got fingerprint evidence. Well, I suppose someone could have made a mistake in analysing the fingerprints. But you've also got the DNA evidence. And it's very, very unlikely that something's gone wrong with all these different types of evidence, these different sources of knowledge, all being wrong, despite the fact that they're very different from one another. So the fact that you have eyewitness testimony and fingerprints and DNA, that may be three pieces of evidence, that's kind of stronger than having three eyewitnesses. Or three fingerprints. Or three DNA samples. Yeah. What is it cumulative? Cumulative. Uh, 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 
if you have one thing and then you gather another thing, I've accumulated two things. I've got more than one. I keep accumulating things by gathering things, adding to the pile of things that I already have. Okay, great. So it just means that an argument that's, that's, that draws on lots of different sources 